You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii Public Radio was the first to report about how the state was moving to block the sale of Queen Liliuokalani's flag, her standard, at a New York auction house. The flag that flew above Iolani Palace was removed by Colonel John Soper, who was the marshal at the time she was dethroned. State archivist Adam Jansen flew to New York two weeks ago to collect the flag and other historic papers after paying $60,000 for them. He says the money was donated by the Abigail Kavananakoa Trust and Hawaii resident Brenda Etherington to reclaim and return the items to the people of Hawaii. Turns out that some of those items had been in state hands before and that around this time next week, you'll be able to go online and read for yourself some of Hawaii's history that has been hidden away in a private collection. Here's Jansen. To me, the real key to this story is we didn't really initiate this entire process. A member of the community had come across this auction and then brought it to our attention saying, hey, have you seen this? And, and knowing our interest in getting these you know, really important state documents back, you know, there were records in there that were obviously you know, of the kingdom government and of the republic government and the queen's standard representing the office of the Mo'i Vahine. To be able to bring those home was really important, and he knew that we would you know, pursue that. Well, you were able to bring these items back home. What exactly was involved in this transfer? The interesting aspect to it is the attorney general's office agreed with my analysis and filed the paperwork for a notice of claim that this belonged to the state. It did not belong to an individual. And we were very prepared to file a lawsuit to press that claim. But again, the community came forward. In this case, Abigail Kwananakoa and Brendan Damon Ethington stepped forward and said, look, you can sue, but that will take years. How about we just purchase the items and then immediately donate them into the public domain so that they'll belong to everybody in perpetuity? And it was a real win-win situation where they were able to step up, be great benefactors, and we were able to shortcut all this litigious process, which you know always has its vagaries on would we be successful? I think so, but you never know what's going to happen. And we were able to secure the rights to these objects. So myself and a deputy attorney general actually flew out to New York so that we could courier these objects home because we didn't want to trust the Queen's standard to USPS or, or some mail carrier, and who knows if it's going to get wet, get drop kicked, or get lost in the mail. It was that important to bring these objects home that we personally couriered them. So did you hand carry them in the plane? <laughs> we absolutely hand carried them in the plane because we wouldn't trust baggage handling to deal with this. So that's why it required the two of us so that we each had carry-ons large enough that we were able to accommodate these objects and bring them home. So this was, what, $60,000 later? Is that Yeah, the... and in my mind, that was a deal. The amount of EK, the knowledge contained in these records is really important to help fill in some of the gaps of what happened during the 1893 to 1895 time period. If we did not capture these things now, they could have gone into private hands and we never would have been able to see them again. I think people will be excited when they can actually see the Queen's flag, the Queen's standard, you know, on display somewhere, you know, but uh, tell us about the, the papers and, and what does that collection entail? The Soper Archives really refers to kind of five different collections of materials. One section dealing with the overthrow. These are reports that 
Soper wrote as commander-in-chief of the armed forces, reporting on the disposition of troops, the activities of January 17th and January 18th. There's even his original report and interview with the culprit of the theft of the crown jewels from Kalakaua's crown. And so a vast amount of really interesting information that needs to be out and in the public. There's also a section on the formation of the National Guard, starting in the Republic, continuing on into the Territorial National Guard and now the State National Guard. There's another section dealing specifically with the rebellions, or as he calls it, the Wilcox insurrections both 1889 when Soper was a kingdom marshal, but also 1895 when he was a head of the National Guard. And then there's a bunch of different miscellaneous things dealing with his offices under the Hawaiian kingdom. And then there's also about a dozen photographs, some of which are not really out in the public domain right now. So again, it'll, it'll provide some more visual information about that time period between 1893 and 1895. And you are big on getting access to the public. Uh, and I understand that you are working on digitizing these documents. Absolutely. You know, that's one of the joys of being the public archives who are really here for the people to help them educate and give them access to their history. So we are actively digitizing all of these materials right now, and we're hoping that by the end of April, they will all be online for anyone at any time, anywhere to be able to, to view, to read, to print out, and to use to better themselves in education. Do we know how this collection got out there and on the auction block? We've been doing some research, and what really helped push that is we actually found an inventory of the public archive, you know, my institution talking about the Soper collection. And it turns out some of these documents were actually here at the public archives in the 1920s. And at that time period, it was a little bit more toward lending library for personal manuscript collections. And after the passing of Soper, his son had actually asked for some of the materials back and he was given them back. And in about 1925, we lost all track of them because they belonged to the family. And my understanding is about two years ago, the family sold all of these objects, the letters and the Queen Standard, to a local collector who then Bonhams tried to auction them off for him. And so there are some of those records which were once here, but there's also a bunch of other things that we never had knowledge of before. So it really is a very interesting collection of materials. So some of those papers actually were in the hands of the state archives, and then we let them go for some reason? That is unfortunately correct. And to allay any any fears, the policy now is once things come in, nothing ever leaves. And this is, I think, a prime example of why that policy is in place. You can't provide knowledge and then take it away because it leaves that hole in people's consciousness of what what did it really say? And it's just not worth it. And what about the Queen Standard? What's the plan for that? The Queen Standard is very, very interesting because in these letters of Soper's, he talks about that. On the 20th of January, 1893, the Queen was flying the standard in front of Washington Place. He dispatched his troops to go tell her to not do that. Two days later, it was back up again. We don't know if it was just household staff doing what household staff does in the daily routine or if she was deliberately provoking. 
but he dispatched an officer to go seize the flag and keep it. And that is something that stayed in the Soper family. So we are looking for a venue where we can put it on public display. And I would say, please stay tuned. We're hoping to make an announcement in the next week or two on how we're going to be able to facilitate that. So what does this mean, the fact that we have been able to, I guess, reclaim uh, some of these items that belong to the Queen and to the state of Hawaii? To me, it provides access to knowledge, and we need that. There's still a lot of gaps in understanding, dealing with issues such as the overthrow and annexation, that the proof that the Lakuakoa bill was signed off by the governor this week proves that you know we're starting to embrace and create a greater understanding of our collective history. So the more of this that we can make accessible, the bigger, brighter picture that we're going to have. And to me, what I'm hoping also is this helps spur the community to be on the lookout, to be aware that if ever they come across these things, these records or artifacts that were part of the government, be that the Kingdom of Hawaii, the Provisional, the Republic, the Territory, that are not in government custody, we need to bring those things back because those things belong to the people. They don't belong in private hands. They belong being accessible to everybody for whatever reason to educate and enrich themselves. That was State Archivist Adam Jansen talking to us about the return of the Queen's Standard and historic papers of Colonel John Soper, who was in charge at the time she was dethroned. Those documents will be available to the public online at the end of the month. And again, that's thanks to a donation from Brenda Ethington and the late Abigail Kavananakoa. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. And thanks so much, Nick. Thanks so much, Kat. Our reality check today looks at a story about the Honolulu Police Department and its policy about the use of firearms. Reporter Jack Truesdale joins us. Hi, Jack. Hi, Catherine. Yeah, so tell us, what were you able to find out? Uh, There was one HPD officer who um, filed a lawsuit recently against the police union saying he's suffering a raft of mental health issues, um, and he also happens to remain on full duty with his firearm. And so what does the policy say about mental health and guns? Um, Usually... Well, state law prevents people who are diagnosed with mental disorders or emotional disorders, um, prevents them from having a firearm unless they have, you know, medical documentation saying uh, they're no longer affected by that disorder. Um, It's not entirely clear whether this officer was actually diagnosed or if he's just uh, claiming that in a lawsuit. Right. And you were able to talk to the uh, police department and they've have confirmed he is on active duty. Yep, they confirmed he's on active duty. Um, haven't gotten back to me with more uh, answers about some of my questions, but um, yeah. And what did the officer say? Um, I called him, and he also said he was on full duty, but then just told me to talk to his lawyer, who 
didn't talk to me. <laughs> okay. All right. But uh, so the the broader policy, I know that uh, Civil Beat has done some reporting on this. Uh, what else can you share mm-hmm. uh, about this situation? Um, I think an interesting, well, so I think the chief has told us before, Civil Beat, in um, February, he met with some of our people and said that there is a sort of early recognition program where uh, higher-ups in the department can, you know, look after certain officers who might be struggling with their mental health, and they kind of encourage them to um, seek help. Um, So I do think there is a bit of that cultural change in the department of, you know, being able to discuss people's mental health more and seek help. Um, But it is interesting. There's a counterpoint going back a couple years um, where uh, an H. Uh, a, a Navy officer had to actually turn in his firearms because he said that he had uh, sought and received medical care for feeling, quote, depressed and homesick. Um, and HBD basically said, you have to turn in your firearms because you're not, like, considered safe. Um, and he eventually won a lawsuit saying that he could um, have his firearms permit. But mm-hmm. him saying... Him saying, oh, depressed and homesick is considerably uh, less uh, extreme than what was described in the lawsuit by this officer, uh, David Kavika Hallams, who said that he suffers uh, severe emotional distress, mental trauma, extreme mental anguish, outrage, severe mental illness, um, anxiety, insomnia, depression. Um, So it is a little bit, uh, you know concerning that HPD still has them on full duty. Right, right. Yeah, so uh, I know that the sh- uh, your story says that Shopo moved to dismiss the case, so I guess we'll just have to see how this all plays out. But very interesting mm-hmm. uh, to see how, you know, you're arguing w- one thing on one side and the reality is something else. But, uh, yeah, we'll see how this gets resolved. But thank you so much, Jack. Yeah, thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Jack Truesdale, who covers criminal justice issues. Uh, look for that story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with Homa Nights, offering art experiences, live performances, and bites and beverages, with galleries open late on Fridays and Saturdays until 9 p.m. HonoluluMuseum.org. You know, what do you think of when NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, comes up in conversation? Rockets? Rovers? Astronauts? Martians? Well, did you know that NASA is home to the largest group of Earth scientists in the world? With more than 25 satellites in orbit, the agency tracks critical changes all over the planet and puts that data into the public domain as quickly as technology allows. The Conversations Lillian Song talk with uh, John Bolton, chief of the NASA Hydrological Sciences Lab at the Goddard Space Flight Center. We have an entire applied sciences program that is focused on leveraging NASA's 25 Earth observing satellites and seeing how we can support and help inform decision making related to folks exactly like you that are, you know, very, very interested in and understand how we can make climate adaptation plans and assess risks related to coastlines. 
And so that's just really the name of the game for us is trying to get all these data and see how we can get a better understanding of, of how the planet works. With these 25 satellites, that's a lot of data, data to cull through. How do you process it so that we as a communities are then able to learn and grow from the information that you guys gather? Each satellite is a little bit different, but you know the name of the game is getting frequent and and regular data. You know, meaning frequent data as, as often as we can. And everything that NASA does, everything NASA produces, is in the public domain. So I want to emphasize that it's free. It's for you. It's our job is getting the data into the hands of decision makers and the hands of just the everyday person. And we're doing a lot of things that are very very relevant now these days. You can access. NASA data and learn from your cell phone. And so while I have the mic here, I want to emphasize that on nasa.gov earth, we have a lot of resources we can learn about where to go and what type of data you can use. So please check that out. There's a lot of tutorials, games, there's all kinds of things there that you can learn, especially about these really unique earth observing satellite based observations. Wow, that's very important information. Good knowledge in the public domain very accessible and everybody has a cell phone so computer at your fingertips any suggestions about what we as communities can do to be more engaged with our government oh absolutely so you know nasa has been working just recently we were working with the county of hawaii's planning department and the hawaii department of land and natural resources for example and this is through our nasa develop program but the whole point is to connect with local communities and enable them to make a difference and their, their understanding of Earth. For example, here we were looking at the island's coastline, for example, and how we can protect wetlands and inform future climate adaptation plans. But there's things that every single person can do. You do not need to be a rocket scientist to save the Earth, right? The choices that you make related to what types of food you eat and where you get your food, if you buy locally, for example, this all affects the planet, right? How you treat your yard, for example, like what you plant, if you litter, if you don't litter, if you recycle, all these things make an impact. And I tell you what, for, for this generation and for future generations, becoming more and more relevant and more and more important. You know, I have a daughter, she's 10. By the time she's my age, there's going to be 10 billion people on this planet. And that means that we have to have a complete rethinking of, of our relationship with water. What NASA is doing, we've, we've been doing this for more than 50 years, right? And so what we're seeing is the critical role that every one of us plays in our environment, right? And we have, especially now because, you know, I'm a hydrologist, so my, my job is based on water. You know, looking at water quality, looking at where the water is and where the water isn't. Well, 90% of natural disasters are related to water. So it turns out, understanding where the water and where the water isn't is becoming more and more important. And what NASA is doing is, is you know, it's great to have these fancy satellites in space and we can see all kinds of cool things, but really having a local understanding and working and connecting with local communities and local decision makers, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. So within NASA's Applied Sciences program, we make a huge effort to have a, you know, work with local communities so we can really have an understanding of, of what's happening. So a lot of it is listening and learning about what's important for local communities. Our whole job essentially is, is trying to find ways of making better decisions, right? And whether or not your job is agriculture or whether or not you're interested in, in how much water is flowing down this river today, tomorrow, or next year, 
you're going to need a really complete picture. Like looking at it, either putting an instrument in the ground and seeing how wet that soil is, or looking at it from a satellite 700 kilometers in space. It's all tied together. And so what we're seeing now, because of advances in technology, we have high performance computing capabilities, we're able to share the data. And this is something NASA is doing quite a wonderful job at doing. We're embracing technology, we're using cloud-based services, machine learning capabilities, and we're able to really get these data into the hands of people who need them. And it's super, super cool. I love it so much. And again, I need to make a pitch for nasa.gov slash earth because we have all kinds of great resources there. Yay. Okay. Well, knowing that you are a hydrologist, what should what should we in Hawaii be thinking about when it comes to using water as an energy source? I mean, we're surrounded by the ocean. Denmark is building turbines on an island that they're building in the middle of the ocean. Is there anything in Hawaii that we should be aware of or thinking about water as an energy source? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think that the message for, from me and what we've learned is embracing technology and looking at this unique synergistic connection between technology and nature is is evolving. And this is a story that's evolving. And, and as you mentioned, in Denmark, they're making great advances in, in doing these, these sort of green technologies for energy. And, you know, I'm not an energy specialist or, or scientist in that way, but looking at water and looking at how this, this ever-changing world and how the communities connect to nature, I think that this is certainly the golden age of technology and certainly for satellite observations. So I have a very optimistic view of the future and seeing the fact that we're sitting here talking, you know, hundreds of miles apart right now, but we're able to connect on this, this similar vision of what can we do uh, to address uh, global health and help in, improve the, our environment and our people is really a message for hope and of the future. Awesome. Okay, and final question, John. If you are a kid or somebody who's interested at heart and would like to know about your work at NASA or would like to work for NASA, what advice would you share? Stay curious. That's really that's really my message. And there's there's so many things that we can do to connect us more with with the world. It's a pretty fantastic time we live in, right? We we have cell phones that we carry around. We have access to a tremendous amounts of information, right? But more than that, you know, I, I do need to make a pitch again for NASA because we have now we have we have really really interesting education material and tools where folks can access through their cell phone education materials you can look at where the nasa satellites are right now it's pretty cool and you can take these data and you can actually work with applied sciences nasa scientists you do not have to be a rocket scientist to change the world is my point but having you know staying curious and realizing that that you really can make a difference and that your accurate actions are impacting your world and you can make a positive change in the world by staying curious and and playing a role in that in that way. Well, I am curious. What was your journey like? How long have you been with NASA? Well, let's see. I've been at NASA for 15 years and I'm from West Virginia and I went to West Virginia University. I studied hydrology. So I'm from near the Ohio River and my my hometown now is one of the more polluted places in the United States, unfortunately. And so that but I spent a lot of my childhood on the river and outside. And that definitely, I think, resonated with me, the importance of 
of you know my connection to nature is huge, right? And and realizing that that this is a precious resource that we must protect. And so that really inspired me to do what I do today. So I'm serving now as the the chief of the hydrological sciences lab. And really what that means, I get to work with some of the, the best scientists in the world. And here at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, we have the largest group of scientists on the planet. And I'm surrounded by rock stars, basically. And it's been a pretty wild journey, I gotta say. And I'm, I'm pinching myself almost daily. But it's really cool. Honestly, my fascination with, with water and the environment hasn't changed so much from when I was young. And it really just because I stayed curious and kept on raising my hand and saying, yeah, that's cool. I can do that. Stay curious. That was John Bolton, chief of NASA's Hydrological Sciences Lab. He talked with HPR's Lillian Song this morning. And that story was a nod to Earth Day, which we celebrate tomorrow. We'll have a link to the data collected by NASA satellites on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Native Books and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Yes, today we bring you a segment about an effort to bring back the stories, the mo'olelo, about Hawaii's native birds. For that, we talk to none other than the voice of our Manu Minute, University of Hawaii at Hilo, Biology Chair Patrick Hart, He's been working with a group on Hawaii Island called Ahui Manu, which means cluster of birds. They gather to write oli or chants about our native avians. Take a listen to Kumu Hula Kekuhi Kanahele from one of their Facebook classes last spring. And Professor Patrick Hart talked with us yesterday about the power of the cultural connection to our native birds. He's working with the community to keep the spirit of the Manu in the forefront, even as many are threatened or endangered. We were really just blown away, honestly, by some of the connections we were finding. You know, birds were the only land vertebrate and had been in Hawaii for over six million years by the time Hawaiians arrived. And so really are the native ancestors of all of us here. Over the next thousand years after the Hawaiians arrived, the birds inspired many forms of art. They were used in the making of sacred objects, such as ahuula or cloaks, mahiole, helmets, kahili, feather staffs. They were major entities in Mo'olelo, or stories, Olelo, Noyao, you know, proverbs. They're very important in mele, or song, and oli, or chant, which is more what we've been focusing on. Not to mention the enormous ecological roles that birds played as plant pollinators and seed dispersers. Ahui Manu is the name of our group, and it began as a collaboration between many people who are eager to see our native Manu thriving and become abundant across Hawaii, and really to try and restore some of the deep cultural connections that have been lost over time between Manu and people, and hopefully to reestablish some some new connections. And so one thing we've been working on as this Ahui Manu group, we meet every three weeks or so, and 
the and it's led by Kekuhi, and we're working on this new oli, and it's called Okalele Ane Auna. As I said, it's composed by Kekuhi with help from the rest of the Ahuimanu group, and it's inspired by the Kumulipo, you know, which is the original creation chant. So it's inspired by that, and so what it does is it basically we're, it seeks to capture contemporary and scientific knowledge of Hawaii birds, along with personal mo'olelo and experiences with the birds, using this traditional framework of the Kumulipo. And so basically what it does is it pairs or lashes together each native bird with an ia, or fish, from the sea and a plant from the land, both of which are doing well in order that they can all move forward together in better health and abundance. And so basically we see it as a way of providing energy and vision to this process that we want to happen, which is to improve the health of our native bird species. You know, on a recent Manu Minute, you talked about the name of the honey creeper that was kind of lost until someone found it in the Hawaiian language newspapers. I yeah, think we're doing research exactly. at the archives. So that kind of stuff is so invaluable to be able to make sure we don't lose the connection. Right. And that's that was actually uh, Noah Gomes who who found that, that relationship. And Noah is actually a member of our Ahui Manu group. And so this effort then, this collective community effort, is really a chance to strengthen our relationship with Manu. Exactly. So talk about this podcast that you folks have started to uh, put together. Well, it's still just in the the drawing board form. But, you know, the Okalele Aneauna, basically, each bird is highlighted in a pauku or a verse of the oli. And so right now we've built it up to about 25 pauku long. That's the number of birds we've done, and it's still going, so it's a work in progress. But one way that we're forming connection with each bird and each pauku is to try and imitate their kani or their song. And so, you know, we will have like this room full of adults trying to imitate all these different birds. It's kind of actually pretty hilarious. But um, (laughs) that's that's part of the oli. And so I just thought that there's some aspects of this that we could bring into um, future Manu Minutes, I'm hoping, you know, to, to really just kind of examine birds in, in new ways. I recently went to a hula event for Halau Mele, and uh, uh, Sam Gon, you know, did an introduction yeah. talking about a mele, about a particular bird, and then they presented this hula, and it was just yeah. a wonderful thing, just a different dimension. Yes. Sam is wonderful. And so is yeah. it Nature Conservancy then like, part of your group? They are, yeah. Some members of Nature Conservancy are part of it, yes. And you know, to me, part of it is that, you know, Oli, I, I come from a, this very Western background, right? And so learning about Oli is a new experience for me. It's just been really, you know, I, I see it as a form of this ancient poetry that helps connect us with the space that we're in and helps focus our intentions in a productive way. And it's, it's basically the way that, you know, we humans have been interacting with the environment and the, and the plants and animals here for forever, you know. And so it's, it's both ancient, but it's also changing to new needs as they come up, right? So it's a really good way to learn Hawaiian words when you try and learn ole and, ole and practice it out loud, you know. It's, and also it's a good way to get better at imitating birds. <laughs> well, uh, I would love to be a fly on the wall in your sessions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. <laughs> How many people normally gather? So usually it's a kind of a core group of only about eight, eight okay. or ten of us. But that's the Ahuimanu meetings, and then we have the AHA. Those happen on various moon phases, usually at least once a month, if not two or three times a month, where we'll do the Okalele Aneona, 
perform that as well as other oli and mele, all of which relate to birds. And so that's open to the public. We've taken a six-month break, but okay. we're getting back to it in May. It's going to be a three to four times a month in May, depending on the, the different moon phases. It'll be a pretty, a pretty full schedule from the bird season through <laughs> through May through about uh, November. Okay. Where is that? Is that at UH Hilo? Well, if we had it in person, it would be up in the forest. Somewhere. Oh, you have it in the forest. Oh, how cool is that? Yeah, that's the best. It should have birds all around it. Birds all around. That is the beauty of the gathering, to be out in that forest and sharing it online. Now, we've been hearing from UH Hilo Biology Chair Patrick Hart. He was talking to us about a project he's been working on with the Native Hawaiian community, exploring the stories of our native birds and the cultural connections with native plants and others in the forest. The group Ahui Manu meets to create chants about our manu, and we hope to feature more about that dimension of these fine feathered creatures in this wonderful world that we call home. And that's our show for today. I'm Catherine Cruz. Now back to Kat and Nick.